<laughs> okay, well, uh, I am a sort of itinerant Christian philosopher stroke apologist, uh, and I fill my time up with different uh, slices working with different organizations, but primarily with the Damaris Trust, headed up by Nick and Carol Pollard, uh, who are also here at the conference, and you've met Nick, he's on our track today, but he's uh, off having another meeting at the moment. Um, so with Demaris Trust, I work with um, A-level students, uh, just pre-university students all around the UK doing uh, conferences that get them thinking about the big questions in life and hopefully, hopefully taking a little bit more seriously big questions that lead to thinking about uh, God and their kind of worldview in particular. And I just really enjoy that interaction with students uh, when you kind of see the lights turning on of actually you can think about these big issues, you can do it sensibly and it's fun and gosh I'm just o- opening up this whole new world to explore which uh, of course I hope leads them eventually to following those uh, signals of transcendence that Oliver Guinness was just talking about uh, to the Lord. Great, thanks Peter. Okay, well, let me just open in prayer and then I'll hand over to Peter and we'll, we'll have plenty of time at the end for questions for lunch. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, what we learned and we're encouraged uh, to engage in that persuasive uh, apologetics uh, this morning. We pray now that you would help us to learn, to stay alert and to benefit uh, from Peter Williams's teaching and ministry. Amen. Amen. So I'm all um, mic'd up left, right and centre uh, and we're ready to go and hopefully all our technology will, uh, will work for us. Um, in a sense, I'm going to do a sort of typical philosopher's job this morning uh, because only a philosopher could get really enthused about defining something. Um, let's face it, uh, and I'm going to give you, uh, offer you a definition of apologetics. But I hope you will find it much more uh, useful and uh, inspiring uh, than that uh, makes it sound uh, because it was something... Um, When it uh, kind of clicked into place for me, I'd been studying uh, various different areas that suddenly all sort of coalesced in my mind uh, in Christiansand Airport one day after I'd just been visiting Gimla Collin College there. uh, And I suddenly had one of those sort of aha, eureka moments. And uh, I found it a very uh, personally inspiring uh, uh, subject and quite a fruitful one uh, for the ministry that I've been involved in. So I hope it will uh, serve you in a a similar manner. Um, I'm going to kind of lay out for you, as it were, a holistic vision of uh, what apologetics uh, can and I think should be. And I'm going to draw on various biblical and classical uh, sources to do that as well. I'm not here working at the level of what we might call apologetic methodology, the whole debate between you know, classical apologetics and evidentialist apologetics and, and so on. I think I'm working at a sort of different level of things here. And I'm also not really ad- addressing here the, the, the more practical, pragmatic uh, issue that Oz was addressing for us this morning of how you might uh, draw upon this to actually engage with individual people or audiences uh, in your context. I'm rather giving a sort of framework that I hope will be a fruitful foundational seedbed at the back of your thinking uh, that will be a useful launch pad into uh, the work of doing and indeed being an apologist. I'm sort of uh, issuing a, a rallying cry here Uh, to us, including myself here, uh, not just to to do apologetics, to be people that do apologetics sometimes, but to be apologists, to be ambassadors uh, for the Lord as well. And I call this, uh, drawing on this uh, new fad that we have at the moment, who knows how long it will go on at the cinema, of 3D films, uh, apologetics in 3D. Because as you'll see, and as you can see from the notes that you have, there's a nice diagram at the end there that pulls it all together. Uh, I end up with a three-by-three grid of concepts. Kenneth uh, Boer in the Apologetics Study Bible says this about defining apologetics. Apologetics may be simply defined as the defense of the Christian faith. The simplicity of this definition, however, masks the complexity of the problem of defining apologetics. It turns out that a diversity of approaches has been taken in defining the meaning, scope, and purpose of apologetics. So I'm going to kind of table 
uh, for your reflection, uh, my uh, particular take on this. And we're going to go through a number of different sections. I'll lay out for you my uh, definition first of all, and then I'll unpack that definition in three stages, looking at uh, worldview and spirituality, looking at the transcendental values, and looking at classical rhetoric, and pulling all those together uh, in a bit of a conclusion towards the end there. So let's start with apologetics. How am I going to define apologetics for you? But first, I'm going to go to the apologist's verse of the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 15, and we'll come back to this verse as we go through. Of course, always be prepared to give an answer, apologia in the Greek, literally a word back, what your lawyer would do for you defending you in a court of law. That's where the context of the word is taken from. It just means giving a, a, a reasoned case back to an objector. Give an answer, apologia, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. And I'm not an expert on languages at all, but I'm told by those that I've read that the wording here, the gentleness is a word that refers to the, the audience that one's engaging, whereas the respect word here is one that more refers to one's relationship to God. That out of the respect for the Lord who you're representing, you engage the audience with a, a gentle spirit. When they're sort of asking open questions. And apologetics is part of spiritual warfare. Talk of spiritual warfare often immediately will bring to mind concepts about um, praying, uh, about uh, exorcism, about those kind of uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit that we were mentioning a little bit earlier as well. And uh, yes, I uh, would include all of that, but also biblically included within this concept of spiritual warfare is really apologetics. Uh, here's Paul in 2 Corinthians. Where he says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And the context here and other references that you can look at make it clear that strongholds here means kind of ways of thinking about things. Ways of thinking about things that are antithetical to the gospel. We demolish arguments. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So apologetics is part of spiritual warfare, according to Paul. Now, apologetics and evangelism, you can, of course, distinguish these two things... But I think from looking at the pages of the New Testament that they always seem to me to go hand in hand. Um, Alistair McGrath here, not a particularly flattering photo of Alistair McGrath, um, but he says apologetics aims to secure consent, evangelism aims to secure commitment. Um, But of course commitment to what one is going to consent. You have to have the belief that something is true before you're prepared to commit to believing in that's something, or believe that someone is who they claim to be, that Christ really is who he claimed to be, before one puts one's trust in Christ as one's own personal saviour. Francis Schaeffer, I'm glad he was mentioned a lot this morning, um, really inspires me in this whole area as well. Um, quotes such as this uh, from the God who is there. He says, the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument, Uh, or a discussion, but that the people with whom we are in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life, that the gospel is something that is addressed to the whole person and that the end aim of doing apologetics, being an apologist, is that people not only you know, make a decision of faith, but that they live a life under the Lordship of Christ. So drawing on these kind of sources, here's how I would define apologetics, and I'll then go through uh, each part of this definition. It's got three kind of clauses to it, each of which draws on three concepts. Hence, we end up with a three-by-three grid apologetics in 3D. 
So I propose that apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities as objectively true and objectively good and objectively beautiful (coughs) through the responsible use of rhetoric. I'll unpack each of those clauses for us. First we'll look at the concept of spirituality in general and what Christian spirituality is. We'll look at the objective values of truth, goodness and beauty and the three elements of classical rhetoric and how those all relate to one another. So let's think a little bit about um, spirituality but also worldview and people will define these things in slightly different ways and they're not really talking uh, against one another. It's just that they're, they're dividing up Um, the geography of the territory, as it were, in slightly different ways. So James W. Sire, in his uh, excellent and justifiably famous book, The Universe Next Door, has been through many editions, and he's gradually evolved his definition of what a worldview is. And this is his definition from the most recent edition. And he, I won't read the whole quote out for you, but he basically says a worldview is not just a matter of people's intellectual answers to the basic questions about reality and people will give different lists of what they consider these basic questions to be you know, why are we here, where have we come from where are we going, should we take sandwiches Um, but thank you, someone got it (laughs) but also as being a matter of the heart of a commitment uh, of of, uh, sort of adopting a certain attitude towards life and so that's a sort of slightly broader Definition and perhaps uh, he started with, and that other people might might simply stick to saying a worldview is people's philosophical viewpoint on the nature of reality, or and how we know stuff, and and the nature of ethics, and these kind of big philosophical questions. So Sire uses worldview in a slightly broader head and heart sense, and. To kind of extend that, what I'm saying about spirituality would incorporate worldview in the James Sire sense, but again, be slightly broader. And it would be a matter of three elements. Not just the head, beliefs, your worldview in a narrowish sense. Not also just your belief and your attitudes, your heart, worldview in a James Sire kind of sense but also the fact that the coupling of your beliefs and your attitudes towards what you believe leads you to behaving in certain ways that characterise that spirituality, leads to actions. So I would say a spirituality is a way of relating to reality. Spirituality is a word that's often got banded around in in various contexts. Educational context was the context I originally was looking at at this in, in the way in which uh, different uh, government advice about uh, teaching spirituality across the curriculum in in English schools was was mutually self-contradictory because no one knew what they actually meant by spirituality. No one was defining it in a consistent way. So I say spirituality is a way of relating to reality, That includes relating to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us, to whatever we think of as ultimate reality. And we do that relating through or via our worldview, beliefs, our attitudes, and our behaviour. So beliefs coupled with attitudes leading to behaviour is a general schema of a spirituality. The spirituality of a Christian, or a Buddhist, or an atheist like Richard Dawkins. And it would also be useful to change the diagram slightly and put it in a a circle, in a loop. Because the spirituality becomes a sort of self-reinforcing way of life. This is why it is difficult to get people to change spiritualities. You're not simply asking them to sign up to a different uh, statement of belief... You're asking them to change their very concept of who they are and how they live, how they relate to everything, to themselves, to other people, to the world, to ultimate reality, whatever they now think that is. So your beliefs and attitudes leads to your acting in a certain way and that becomes self-reinforcing. Because I believe there is a God and I have a positive attitude towards the, 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 the fact that there's a God, that leads me to doing things like going to Bible study, praying, 
But going to Bible study and praying tends to uh, help me to uh, think through what I believe and reinforce that and to, to um, have the resources in community and so on to continue uh, acting in the right way that reinforces my beliefs and my attitudes. And, and so it goes. And that's the same, of course, for every spirituality. Now, I can't claim to have come up with this underlying definition of spirituality uh, because some guy called Jesus seems to have got there first. Um, When in reply to the question about the greatest commandment, what's the, the main thing in life, he said, well, according to him, true spirituality means loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. It's reported in slightly different wording in in, in different Gospels, and it's also drawing on a passage from Deuteronomy. But this is the basic structure, it seems to me, of what he's saying. You love God with everything you are, and you divide that up into your attitudes, your hearts, your mind, including, of course, therefore, your worldview, and with all your strength, i.e. everything you do in life. So the internal structure of true spirituality according to Christ is to love God with all of your everything, your spirituality, and love your neighbour as yourself, which of course includes loving yourself. And So you have relationships with everything, basically, out of a love, which is foremost the love of God, which then feeds into the other relationships that you have. That's the kind of internal structure of Christian spirituality. Of course, the way into that way of life, according to Christ, is through Christ himself. He says, you know, I am, I am the door. Come and take the yoke and learn from me. I'm the way into true spirituality. So I said we come back to 1 Peter 3.15. Now that we have these, this structure of spirituality in mind... Notice that Peter is talking about doing stuff here. He says, give, do this, do it with gentleness and respect, give answers, give reasons, something we're called to do. Why are we called to do that? Why do we do it? Because of our attitude of our hearts, because of our commitments, because of the hope that we have. How are we to do it? With an attitude of gentleness, with an attitude of respect. And all of this is, of course, founded upon beliefs. We're prepared to give an answer, an apologia. We give reasons. We can articulate our beliefs and defend them and give reasons for them. Or you look at the reaction recorded in Acts after the first evangelistic sermon preached by Peter at Pentecost. When the people heard this... Peter's truth claims about Christ and what had happened to him in the resurrection, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and so on, they were cut to the heart. They had a certain heart response to what they had heard and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do in response to this? So again, that structure of spirituality can be seen from the response to the gospel message, let alone the straightforward content of the gospel message. Paul in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ, the word of God, dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Beliefs. And whatever you do, do it all in the name, in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, One last one, I think. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Um, In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Behave in a certain way. Do something about this situation. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. So once you have this general kind of schema in the the background of your mind, you, you suddenly notice it jumping out at you all over the place. Well, let's move on to that second part of the definition of spirituality I gave about the truth and the goodness and the beauty, what the medieval scholastic philosophers called the transcendental values. Um, That's not to do with uh, transcendental meditation. It's rather they meant these are general categories of evaluation that everything we think about will fall under to some extent. 
everything will be evaluable, evaluable as either true and or good and or beautiful or false and or evil and or ugly. And they obviously relate, they interrelate with each other, that's sort of complexity we could go into, but they primarily relate again to these three categories we've taken of spirituality. So what do you judge the beliefs of a worldview by? By whether or not they're true. That's what you've got to be interested in. Well, actions, judge them by their goodness or lack of it. Attitude of the heart, the kind of sense in which we might talk about someone's character as being a beautiful thing. Beauty, the attitudes. So truth, goodness and beauty clearly relate to the different elements of spirituality. And spirituality is to be judged by and held accountable to the standards of truth and goodness and beauty. And this kind of gives us, again, a slightly broader view than that in apologetics all we're simply doing is trying to argue for the truth of a set of beliefs. If what we're really trying to do is to help people to embrace a different spirituality than the one they already have, to embrace Christ and live under his lordship, yes, it's important that they see that it's true, but it's also important that they see that Christ is good. Um, they see that the Christian way of life that they're being asked to adopt is, is, is a beautiful thing. Um, why John, at the beginning of John's Gospel, having talked about the Logos, the Word of God, the Word becomes flesh, and we have seen him full of... Well, he, doesn't, he does say truth, but he doesn't just say truth. He says full of grace and truth. He says something about the character of the person, the goodness, the attractiveness of Christ, as well as simply the truth of Christ. Just a quick quote from British philosopher John Cottingham. It's interesting to see him uh, noting that, to everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and of value is correct. Truth, beauty and goodness, he says, carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand. And I really like the way that he phrases it at the end here. He says, the true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. It's not simply that you you do admire it, or it's psychologically possible for you to admire it in a kind of subjective sense. Maybe the the commandant of Belson camp looking at the smoke coming out of his chimneys may have subjectively admired the panorama before him. But it was not an admirable panorama, intrinsically speaking. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. And of course the central element here, linking all of them together as values, is the worthiness of a commitment, choice, uh, towards these things, of the worthiness of believing that which is true. Um, I love uh, American Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft's definition of what it means to understand something. I've found it really helpful over the years. He says, to understand something is to stand under the authority of what is true to determine what you believe about reality. So it's not a a self-centred, egotistical thing It's a humility thing of being committed, having an attitude of, I am going to conform myself to what is true. I'm going to conform what I believe to what's true, rather than thinking, I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to make my own reality. I'm going to define what's true for me. So objective understanding, standing under the authority of that which is true, as that which has the authority to determine what you believe. Now, I think Paul would have really resonated with this. And I think a crucially important passage here is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 9, something that I looked at when I was doing my MPhil research on the transcendental values and how they related to one another and to the concept of God. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, it is true, not 
whatever's true for you, different strokes for different folks, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, terms that all seem to relate to goodness here. And then he moves on and says, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is beautiful. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, picking up on Cottingham's use of worthy, think about such things. So I think Paul would have certainly resonated with the, this triad of the classical values that were picked up by the medieval scholastic philosophers in particular. Two out of three, one to go. Rhetoric, and it's a term that in our culture has something of a bad name. Um, partly in sort of political, socio-political culture, we might criticise a politician, say, for, oh, oh, he's strong on rhetoric, but weak on content. Or he's just, they're just swaying the crowd uh, through their use of propaganda or something, and it's come to have these kind of associations And also within certain sections of the church, Paul's rejection of the type of sophistic rhetoric that was going on in Corinth and his reaction against bad rhetoric has kind of overflown into a rejection of rhetoric per se. And um, I view that really as a sort of throwing out of the baby with the bathwater, to use that English phrase that cropped up the other evening as well. The transcendental values will obviously relate to the three elements of classical rhetoric stemming from Aristotle. This is Alistair McGrath again. He says that in the battle for the hearts and minds of people, Christians need to know about rhetoric. Aristotle, which is, who is the kind of classical fountainhead of thinking about rhetoric, provides both a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics. He's a bust of Aristotle, 4th century BC, and his famous book on rhetoric. And uh, Aristotle then had an influence. Of course, the Romans then uh, adopted a lot of Greek thinking when the Romans came to power. And a particularly influential Roman orator and writer on rhetoric was a guy called Cicero, who in the sort of 50s BC was uh, governor of the region of the world that one Saul of Tarsus came from before he then went to be educated in Jerusalem in the school of Gamaliel, which was famous for teaching not only Jewish thought, but also Greek thought was studied in that school. Here's Aristotle's definition of rhetoric. He says, rhetoric is the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter, I've misspelled it there, Uh, admits. Now notice first of all, this is an objective definition of rhetoric. There is a difference between rhetoric, as defined by Aristotle, and mere propaganda, or uh, in a lot of cases, you might say advertising. It's kind of like the difference between these two adverts. Supposing you have one advert, it's like, how can we make people buy our car? I know, let's... uh, show them quickly edited pictures of our car from all sorts of angles with a, a female draped over the bonnet wearing a bikini with the latest pop track playing underneath our 30-second advert. This will persuade people to buy our car. Um, that is bad rhetoric by the Aristotelian definition. On the other hand, you may have, say, a slightly more dull, no doubt, advert for spot cream in which the guy in the white coat comes on and says, you know, use this brand of spot cream because in clinical trials <laughs> it's been proven uh, to uh, outperform uh, this other brand of spot cream and it really makes a difference in 80% of people's acne problems. Okay, much more dull. Ideally, you'd like a, an advert uh, that is neither uh, dull, but it is informative. You'd like to keep the informative, nor... Uh, exciting but not informative and of course exciting in the in uh, morally respectable manners as well um, but Aristotle for ret- Aristotle the rhetoric would be um, 
not represented by the car advert that I described. Um, the spot cream advert is more close to the heart of the matter. It is, it is observing what is persuasive intrinsically about something and then acting as a kind of good um, matchmaker for the audience to help the audience to see for themselves what is persuasive about what you're discussing. To help the audience, the person you're dialoguing with, to see the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Christ. You're not trying to make something up out of whole cloth or make something out of nothing. And the study of rhetoric encompasses those principles of how best to go about doing that observation and that matchmaking and that communication. So this is the the famous and classic passage from Aristotle's rhetoric, and I've inserted some of our key terms into it here, how they relate. So Aristotle says, of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, and of course in his day, spoken word was the primary way of communicating, even if you're thinking about Greek plays and so on, yes, you have visual element to that. Um, We live in a much more visual culture, and you may have to kind of think through how this uh, transfers, but I think it does transfer Of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three basic kinds. The first kind is called ethos in the Greek. Uh, Think of how we talk about the ethos of of a company, say, the kind of corporate ethos, the kind of character of a company. Depends on the personal character of the speaker. Obviously relates to goodness. Do you come across to your audience uh, as being like the stereotypical used car salesman that you wouldn't trust as far as you could hurl, hurl them? Or do you come across as someone who knows what they're talking about, walks the walk as well as talks the talk, uh, is genuinely interested in them and not just making a sale, and so on? The second is called pathos in the Greek. Um, this word has lost its meaning somewhat in, in English at, at least, Um, If I were to talk about Tchaikovsky's great Russian composer, his symphony, the Pathetic Symphony, I think a modern English speaker would immediately think of the English word pathetic. As in, oh, that's just pathetic. That's kind of limp and useless. Well, of course, the Pathetic Symphony is far from being a useless and, and limp and pathetic symphony. Is a really emotionally engaging and affective symphony, piece of music. It really engages the heart and the emotions and really pulls you in. And um, pathos is that kind of a term. So pathos depends on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind, or we might say certain um, attitudinal engagement with your subject. And the third, logos, um, John's use of logos from Stoic philosophy to describe Christ. Logos on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself. Obviously being judged by the truth, trying to get at the truth through rational argumentation. So again, this seems to crop up in Paul. And here's Paul in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, giving advice on evangelism. He says, when you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Have good ethos. And hold their interest when you speak the message. Employ good pathos with your audience. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. Puts you in mind of 1 Peter 3.15 again and obviously relates to Logos. So here, though he doesn't use the terms, Paul seems to be using the same concepts of ethos, pathos, Logos, and even mentions them in the same order that Aristotle mentions them in. I don't know whether that's a coincidence or the fact that he knew Uh, at least the tradition of Aristotle's rhetoric, perhaps through more recent works like those of Cicero. We come back to 1 Peter 3.15 again. You, of course, see those categories would again link up. 
the ethos, the pathos, the logos is all contained within there. They can be mapped because these concepts all relate to each other. So, let us draw these threads together. Back to our definition of apologetics, and now I've, I've explicated and unpacked what I'm talking about. Let me just uh, review it one last time. The art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities as objectively true and good and beautiful through the responsible use of rhetoric, through good ethos and pathos and logos. And hence you end up with this nice little summary chart where you have the three elements, the structure of spirituality, judged by the three transcendental values and communicated through the three elements of classical rhetoric. There's in that airport in Christian Sand that um, research on what is the spirituality and stuff I'd been doing on rhetoric and stuff I'd been doing on the transcendental values in the past sort of all coalesced with each other and went click, 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 aha! That seems to be a useful, inspiring way of thinking about this. Apologetics should not be a grievous burden to us. I, I, I've done this material to a number of different groups, and you're obviously all uh, experienced at going out and doing apologetics and talking with people and, and so on in your ministries. But I've done this to general church audiences and student audiences and so on, um, and perhaps some of this more sort of experiential advice uh, will uh, be helpful encouragement for you as well. Um, Apologetics is not meant to be a grievous burden, this sort of onerous task that's laid upon our shoulders that we must struggle with. It is weighty, if you like, in the C.S. Lewis sense of the weight of glory, but it is a weighty joy when taken in the right biblical sense. Apologetics isn't merely an act of loving service, and all this comes down to love, really, the central element of Christian spirituality. It's not merely an act of loving service to God and to neighbour, loving neighbour as yourself, but something that's good for your own spiritual maturity as well. It is good for Christian discipleship as well as making of Christians, as it were. Just as spiritual maturity produces an enthusiasm for apologetics, because it all comes down to love. If you think, you know, Jesus is not only as the English might say, the best thing since sliced bread. But the best thing, the best person, the best relationship that you could ever have with your creator and redeemer, and you love other people because he first loved us, how can you not want to share Christ with them? How can you not want them to have the best thing as well. If you discover a new fantastic recipe for chocolate muffins and you love your family, you love your work colleagues, you will want to share that recipe with them. How much more then, brothers and sisters? Must we want to share Christ? So just as spiritual maturity produces an enthusiasm for apologetics, so I think incorporating an enthusiasm for apologetics into your spirituality will lead to greater spiritual maturity and become a self-reinforcing feedback loop of divine uh, appointment. You could look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 there, um, just to bracket a bit of New Testament uh, and the way we were warned against at the beginning of the conference. And this is Alistair McGrath. Uh, from his book, The Passionate Intellect. It's also from his book, Mere Theology, which is the same book, uh, depending on which side of the the pond uh, you pick up a copy. Um, So The Passionate Intellect, or Mere uh, uh, Theology, and um, it's a collection of, uh, I think, really interesting and useful essays on apologetical matters. And he really uh, captures something of this more holistic, broader uh, vision of apologetics for me. 
says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative, and intellectual vitality of the Christian faith. Working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live out there. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and the beauty of God. True apologetics engages not only the mind, or it does, but also the heart. And we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. We are thus called upon to demonstrate and embody, being apologists, not just doing apologetics, to demonstrate and embody the truth beauty and goodness of faith. I'll end with uh, five practical bits of advice. Uh, Again, I've given this material to audiences who are perhaps only starting to to think about apologetics. I'm sure you're a lot further down the road, but again, I'll just summarise these briefly just in case it's of help. Five practical things, because I've, I've done a lot of sort of abstract. Here's a philosophical definition of apologetics. So let's get practical. Number one, study and pray into relevant scriptures. And I've bracketed a whole bunch of them, and they're on your worksheets there. But we looked at some of these uh, repeatedly as we went through. This might be something that, that, that helps you kind of put some of this into practice within your church or ministry contexts in terms of communicating this with others as well. Secondly, encourage appropriate dialogue within the church, within the Christian community, about doubts and questions to, concerning the truth and goodness and beauty of, of faith. Don't take part in that conspiracy of silence that can develop over doubts and questions doubts and questions that are, that are pushed down underground eat away at people's foundations we need in the church to provide a safe and nurturing context in which people can be open about raising questions and uh, misunderstand, l- lack of understandings or misunderstandings or doubts that they have and say that's how you grow by meeting your, your doubts raising them, sharing them You know the, the, the command sh- carry one another's burdens I always thought that's a very interesting command to bear one another's burdens because the colliery the, the, the implication of that is that we have a, a responsibility of Christians to share our burdens with one another um, we shouldn't have that attitude oh no I mustn't share my burden with everyone else I wouldn't want to bring them down kind of thing well how can anyone fulfill the command to love their fellow Christian by sharing and bearing their burdens with them if we never reveal to other people what our burdens are. And particularly, perhaps as, as apologists and people who may maybe think other people are looking to us as, you know, we're meant to have all the answers, kind of thing, and I hope we, we never give off this, this ourselves, that we, you know, we've got it all sorted ourselves. Um, but it might be particularly hard, other people's expectations and attitudes on, on you guys, you gals, to be able to, to have that openness but if we can, can model that and encourage other people to as well I think that's a really good thing uh, to pick a phrase from Francis Schaeffer always seek honest answers to honest questions some questions are a smokescreen but not all of them sometimes there are honest questions and we have to be engaged in giving honest answers to them learn without ceasing at an appropriate level and there's lots of different ways and we were talking about, uh, about sort of uh, the way in which we're enculturated to, to really like reading our generation, our educational backgrounds and so on. It puts a, a premium on reading. But there's so much resources out there now 
at an audio and a, a visual level. The documentary that we were watching the other night that Ian Morris is producing, uh, really good. Um, and there's loads of stuff out there that people can listen to on their iPods or in the car on their way to work or view over YouTube and the internet and so on. And finally, uh, we are, but we need to encourage others to do this and perhaps take our role as sort of uh, in mentoring other people into this so that we don't just think of ourselves as, okay, we're, we're the people that do this and everybody else can just kind of let us get on with it. Um, <laughs> We need to um, also do that thing of of mentoring and uh, discipling and helping uh, the church uh, in the broad to get engaged with this, to put ourselves and others in a position to gently, appropriately give an apology for the hope that we have. Um, And so perhaps those are some um, more practical kind of existential bits of advice that might might be helpful. Uh, so that's the end of my uh, comments, and I invite uh, your comments and your, your questions. Thank you. Just in the back there, yes. What's your name, I'm sorry? Grindle Kent. Second? Grindle Kent. Grindle. Okay. Thank you for uh, quite a candid paper, actually, and I enjoyed how that pulled things together. Mm. Um, can I just provoke you in the area of images? I mean, mm. as you alluded to, we live in a very imagistic culture. Um, does that break you? you grid from Aristotle, or does it all fit under the, the middle category of beauty? Um, does that explain why we're a bit light sometimes on logos and reading and all those kind of old-fashioned things? Yes, I mean, certainly it's been observed by many, I, I think, that, that media culture mitigates against communicating by words. Sorry, can I just repeat the question? Yeah. Which is um, why I actually stood up the question. <laughs> I forgot. Uh, the question is... Um, does the fact that we live in a, an image-driven society have an impact on the use of logos and words, that part of rhetoric that Peter talked about? Yeah. Um, so a more visual style of communication and the short attention spans generated by television and so on does tend to mitigate against that. Um, and your only two possible responses, really, are to swim against that stream... Um, and it's something that um, I think the discipline of from an early age being, having been brought up in a church going family of you know, at least once a week sitting down and listening to someone give a half hour talk on something that's kind of swimming against a cultural stream uh, to do that that's, that is something that churches can actually help with people with uh, very practically but the, the other is to adapt our communication style and, and methods but I don't think it breaks the, the Aristotelian grid as it were um, it just maybe shifts the, the channel, the communication channel that's being used. So you have to try and put more of the message through the, the pathos, through the beauty category, um, through the use of modern media, through film clips, through these, these kind of things. Um, but I think you must never abandon the underlying logos of the things. The, these should never be separated independently of one another, they should all fit together, but you may emphasise a different channel to a different audience as appropriate, I think. Just one follow-up? Just yeah. if I may. Mm. Is, it, is it fair to say that um, Paul, in his own apology, in Acts, for example, considers images? Um, oh, yeah. His own Jewish culture would have derided, and also, mm. didn't Plato call images <clears throat> those things for the, for the weak-minded and for women and for children? Yes, but yeah. yeah. So a comment, a question about... Um, uh, the attitude that Paul might have taken to images in Acts 17. Yeah, and also the, the contrast that there may be with um, Plato, the Greek philosopher's view and derision of um, images and even of, of poetry, poetic images and so on, even images given three words. He didn't really like Plato. Um, so Paul in Athens, and I, you could do a, a case study of Paul in Athens as I do elsewhere with these concepts in mind, and I think Paul is really following this this grid in Athens, it's a good affirmation of this kind of approach, but it says there at the beginning um, that he carefully studied the artefacts of the Athenians that he visited, their, their statuary, the statues of their gods, their altars. Um, he'd not only studied the concepts, the words of their differing philosophies, the official state religion, the stoical philosophy, the Epicurean philosophy, 
the kind of uh, materialists and new ages of the day, as it were. But also their artistic, cultural product. And he talks about all of those things in his talk. Uh, no doubt to, to reach the, the widest possible audience. And he uses that, you know, the altar to the unknown God as his, his leverage point into uh, the discussion of, of the appointment of Christ as the judge and, and so on to get into the gospel. Great. Thank you. Yes. Uh, what's your name, Brian? Uh, Kevin. Kevin. Um, so I'm thinking about this. I mean, I have mourned for some time the fact that rhetoric isn't taught in the U.S. anymore. Mm. Uh, it would be hard pressed to find a university that has courses. Mm. Uh, and it's been, and as a consequence, it's allowed to be consumerized in some really interesting, mm. interesting and ugly ways. So that, I mean, to use your first illustration, it would be like uh, you would have the really attractive celebrity mm. pushing your spot green, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the the ethos would be replaced by the fact that they're celebrities, so therefore they must mm. be good. You know, and the beauty mm. part would be the sex appeal. Mm. And then the truth is whatever they say because they're what they're underlying saying is, you know, yeah. you like me or be with me, mm. you know, if you use this product. Yeah. And the problem I have with the then using apologetics is that the people that I'm speaking to mm. are thinking in that cycle and not in this cycle. So that, that question mm. from Kevin is, is pointing out that we live in a celebrity-driven culture mm. where um, beauty is associated with the celebrity and truth gets subsumed under that. And that would be fair to say you're asking how would we do apologetics in that sort of culture? Yes, how do we, how do, we do apologetics in, in a culture where you know, that is how rhetoric is, is yeah. not? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to say is obviously we do not conform to the world. We do not adopt the world's methodology in order to try and get our message across because then we would be um, undermining our own position, the integrity of the gospel to do that. So we have to fight against that and we have to try and kind of cajole or shock people out of that mindset and I think this is where what Oz was saying in the first session about subversion uh, and the use of say humour or irony kind of popping that bubble, getting people to see the, the, the ludicrousness of that way in which they allow themselves to be manipulated by people with enough money to put together a clever advertising campaign um, to get people to actually be able to step back and think a little bit about what's going on there. Something that I do in the UK with school children and the conferences that I do, uh, I, I tell them a, a little bit uh, about sort of communication theory or logic or whatever, but we look at some examples of television adverts. And I kind of say to them, okay, what, what's really being communicated here beyond please buy my product? Now, what, what's, what are you really being? What messages are you receiving? I get them thinking about that, and then I get them thinking about: Is that a sensible way of me being convinced to buy that car or buy that brand of hair colouring? Um, and at least some of the time, you can see the kind of scales falling away, and the kind of thinking: No, that's you know, they've done nothing to actually convince me that that's a sensible choice for me to make. They've just told a story that carried me along emotionally and that was all they did. Or they just used clever editing and, and music. Or they just associated their product with some celebrity or with things that I already feel good about. So they hope that I'll feel good about their product. But they've done nothing to actually convince me in a persuasive, rational manner that, that, that I should buy this brand of hair colouring or this make of car or, or whatever. Um, so I, I, I try and do a job of kind of undermining that um, irrational way of thinking about things, that, that bad rhetoric, before, to clear the ground, for then saying, well, well, how do we think about these things? How do we get persuaded in a rational manner? And I actually come into I teach them critical thinking skills. I have to sort of enable them, because critical thinking skills are not taught within the UK educational system. 
the number of times we've had students, A-level students, 16, 17-year-old students at A-level conferences that we put on coming up to us and saying, you know, you've, you've spent the morning teaching us about how an argument works, how conclusions follow properly from premises and so on. Why has no one ever told us this before? Why isn't this foundational to our education? This is surely foundational to thinking about everything and anything. <laughs> we think, well... Yes, it is. Why isn't it in the educational system and so on? We wish we could kind of change that. But I think we, we do have to do a sort of a pre-apologetic task, as it were, in equipping people with the tools to be able to engage with what we're doing in apologetics. Um, it's, it's like my... Uh, I'm going on a bit here, but I've just thought of a, an analogy that's useful. I used to have this analogy about the difference between apologetics and a modern, modernist and a postmodernist context. And it's kind of like, modernism is someone sitting in a castle to defend themselves against your view, and you do sort of rational apologetic, and you bring up, you bring up your siege cannon and your siege engines, and you're going to hurl some arguments at their walls, uh, but they're going to play by the same rules. They're going to say, if you can hurl big enough objects at my walls that knock my walls down, then you win. Okay, we're playing on a sort of level playing field here. Um, you're trying to convince me, not my, my, my position down, etc. Postmodernism comes around and it's like digging a great big wide moat around that castle that's so wide that no ballista or cannon or whatever you bring up is ever going to be able to reach the wall. It says, I'm not interested in truth or logic. That's so Western, man, you know. Um, as Ravi Zacharias says, you know, even in India, when we walk across the street, we look both ways because it's either the bus or us. <laughs> um, logic will out. But postmodernism digs this, this dig ditch around the wall. So, so what do you do? Your, your siege engines are, in a sense, rendered impotent in that situation. Do you give up? Um, do you just say, okay, well, I'm not going to make any claims about truth. I'm just going to tell you my story. No, the gospel claims to be truth. Christ claims to be the truth, the way, and the life. What you have to do is drain the moat. You have to step back and do another task. There's no shortcut here. There's only, as C.S. Lewis would say, you know, if... if if you've made a mistake, you have to go back and correct it. You really can turn the clock back. He say, people say, oh, you can't turn the clock back. He says, if the clock's showing the wrong time, the only sensible thing to do is turn the clock back to the right time. <laughs> yes. First of all, thanks. Mm. Okay. Um, based on your definition of spirituality, which is helpful, incorporated through your grid, I was mm. just thinking about spirituality in the sense that when we speak of it sometimes it's a we overemphasize one realm of the Christian life and certain realms of spirituality to the exclusion of others. Mm. I'm thinking about your grid here and thinking, do you think we tend to in certain contexts overemphasize one of these to the exclusion of the others? And if we do that, how can we in community, mm. you know, practically because one of the practical steps you mentioned mm. which is very helpful is individually and corporately. Mm. So how do we corporately kind of keep these in harmony and balance, not just overemphasizing the logos or maybe overemphasizing how do we get how do we get that kind of working yeah. together? Okay. So the question is um, how can we uh, together as a community help each other um, maintain these these three aspects of apologetics in balance? Uh, one answer would be to come on to me and sign up to the webinar and the <laughs> conference and the networking opportunity we're giving you. But I'll let Peter give another <laughs> Thank you. Exclusive alternative, but a compliment. <laughs> Repeating the question is actually really useful for the speaker because yeah. it gives you a few moments to think, gosh, that's a tough question. How am I going to answer that one? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of two parts here. Um, does the Christian community overemphasize some of the grid, as it were, to the exclusion of others? And what do we do about it, given that they do? So, um, yes, they do. Uh, what can I say a little bit more fulsomely on that? I think the church, uh, as I've experienced it and know it at least, has been good at holding on in the main to the concept of truth to the, the truth of the gospel, the reliability of scripture and so on. We're also 
in my experience, good at holding on to the concept of, of real good and evil because the concept of sin is so central to the gospel and you really can't kind of do the Christian life or, or think about becoming a Christian, being a Christian without the concepts of sin of forgiveness for sin. And it's not just that, you know, God happens to not like some stuff that we do like and so if we're going to get on with him, we, we have to kind of conform, you know, but it's all relative. You know, God dislikes stuff because it really is evil. <laughs> um, and we, we recognise that in ourselves and our need for redemption from it and forgiveness and so on. So we're good at holding on to, to truth and goodness in the main, I think. In the main. But beauty is, I think, the Cinderella here. And I think uh, that a lot of the church has lost the concept of the objectivity of beauty. We've bought into a sort of postmodern, relativistic, subjectivistic view of beauty. Um, and if I were to recommend one thing to get into on that issue, it is C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, where he talks about um, values, but he concentrates on beauty and looks at the educational system and, and how relativism and postmodernism, it wasn't called that then, was beginning to creep into the educational system, kind of through values through the back door. People thought they were learning English, but really they were being taught subjectivity about values. Um, really good book, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. That might be an inspiration to you here. Um, what do you do about it? Be an enthusiastic advocate of the thing that people are missing out on. Um, incarnate it and demonstrate it. Really uh, support and encourage and, and, and get in with your uh, church praise leaders, the musicians, the artists. Think creatively about the way in which the arts can be used to um, exhibit and demonstrate and communicate the gospel. Uh, think more about pathos in your talks. Now, I, I come from a uh, you know, literate, philosophically educated, book-reading uh, culture and education, and I do talks by talking at people and showing them words. But at least now, because of, of this, it's actually started me thinking... What is a really good image that I can use as a background to that slide that communicates something about it, that illustrates it? So that it's not just you know, a plain background with some bullet points on it, but there's something that's visually related to what I'm doing. How can I diagram this for those who are sort of visual learners rather than just linguistic learners? How can I use a film clip uh, in a talk, particularly when, I, you know, when I'm going in schools with A-level students and so on, how can I use games and exercises that get them to see something? Um, how can I um, use visual paradoxes or a clip from, from a film uh, to illustrate something to get them thinking and talking about things? Um, how can I use different learning styles and so on? So some of that learning about communication theory and different learning styles and so on and thinking how can I incorporate what I can cope with of that at least into what I'm doing um, uh, you know different things are going to come to the fore at different, different times uh, in a talk the main thing is what you talk about obviously but you can still bring in elements of, and demonstrate elements of thinking about these other categories in, in what you're doing and support those who are at the forefront of, of praise you know the way in which beauty is an objective thing God the, the end result of my infill thesis was God is the maximally beautiful being. You know, Anselm would have said God is the greatest possible being. Which is fine in as far as it goes, but it's a bit kind of dry. But if you suddenly think God is the most beautiful being that there is or could be. I think that says the same thing, basically, but in a much more attractive, heart-engaging way. And just as goodness points to God if you think about the moral argument for God beauty points to God and people's experience of beauty is intricately bound up with uh, religious experience um, as a sort of channel of those signals of transcendence that Peter Berger talks about and so on so uh, I think we have a lot to do as a church and uh, corporately and individually in the area of beauty in particular let's take one more question yes uh, and Rick. Rick. So uh, you're just talking about the, exactly the thing that I wanted to raise. We okay. are emphasizing truth constantly. And even when we're taught how to empty the moat, it's how to use arguments yeah. to empty the moat. And they don't 
want to hear the arguments, or it's, it's true for us. And I find it interesting that Oz told us this morning that he is just learning how to do certain things with rhetoric. After mm -hmm. all of his years of experience in public speaking, and I think it's because it's not taught mm -hmm. apologetics. Now, we, we're still exploring how to use the well form to its best advantage. And I think it would be great if we could figure out a way, if we decide how to do this, how to uh, provide resources. So input we would value is, how do we think about beauty? It's not beauty as if the eye of the beholder. That's yeah. where we have problems in the church. Yeah. And rhetoric and the things I'll talk mm. about, the mm. things you talk about. The people here know mm. some good resources mm. that can add to the training to the issue of truth, I would really like to hear that. Yeah. yeah, so that's just a reminder, really, that we we will, and I think I'm planning on seeing feedback on it on uh, Tuesday. So if by Tuesday you could have talked to each other and put some ideas about subjects that you'd like to have webinars provided for, and we'll feed that back to Rick, and um, that'll be really helpful. And um, Peter, thank you very much. Uh, it's really helpful. Um,